And today, uh, I'm excited because it's somebody, we have somebody who is coming to speak to you today. Uh, and uh, this, this woman is, I will say, is probably one of the top five smartest people I've ever met. Okay, I'm just telling, just letting you know. Smart, tough. Uh, she's a trial, law, trial attorney, too, so don't get in an argument <laughs> with her. But I tell you what, she has this passion for, for going to bat for people who've been taken advantage of. And she brings that passion into the kingdom of God. She really does. And you know her as somebody with a heart for worship. Uh, she's one of our talented worship leaders up here. And I think after today, you definitely are going to agree with me that she also has the call of God to, to preach on her life. Um, and we're just so excited to have uh, Brenna Sanchez speaking with us. Praise the Lord. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. You know, as people grow up, grow up in, in the church, and our church has been here over 30 years now, but they grow up in church and, and you just become, you, you see people come, you know, and just grow in the Lord. And, uh, and, and, and you never know, you never know as they're growing up and you're, mm-hmm. you know, you just love them like family and, you know, and pray for people. As pastors, People don't know how much you pray for them, but as you just pray for them and you pray God's will be done in their life. But you never know how God's going to use them. It has to play out in life. Mm-hmm. And so um, it's a joy for me to see. You know, uh, Brenna, she and Jared, they've been... Yeah, see? Hey, they, they go way back. We go way back. <laughs> Hallelujah. And, uh, but it's, it's a real pleasure and a real joy to see them come up in the Lord, love Jesus, serve God with all their hearts, and accomplish good things for God. Amen? Amen. So, uh, praise the Lord. I'm, uh, I'm enthusiastic to see what God's given her today. Amen. Amen. Let's give her a big generation's welcome. Brenna Sanchez. I am going to endeavor not to cry. <laughs> um, as you might have guessed, I... I Grew up here. I was born in August of 1984, and so was this church. Uh, so I've gone here all my life. I, um, it's not just me. Obviously, I didn't, I didn't drive myself here when I was 10 days old. Um, I, I am a member of a generation of people who come to Generations Church. My grandmother is a member here. My great-grandmother is a member here. My son is a member here. And it's really, um, I'm not going to cry. <laughs> I, I'm really uh, cognizant and, and humbled by the honor of, of getting to stand here where the greats have and do stand and talk to you guys today. Um, I didn't have the iPad ready, I'm sorry. So, hang on one second. There it is. Um, so, I have been... I feel like y'all could take that down for a second. <laughs> um, so I've been um, uh, walking with God in this relationship for uh, about 29 years. I'm 33. Um, and one of, the, one of the toughest questions, or, or maybe the, we'll call it the deepest mystery I've encountered in my walk with God is the question of, if God is good, why is there suffering in the world? And I don't know about you guys, but I, I almost never get this question 
from someone who is, who's already a believer, who I know to be a believer. I usually get it from, from someone who's outside, who's questioning, who, who hasn't committed their life to Christ yet, which isn't to say that a believer can't have this question. You absolutely can. If you're someone who wrestles with it, that's fine. As a side note, if you get this question from a non-believer, keep in mind that it's, it's never about the question or the answer. If a non-believer asks you this question, um, you would want to engage in what's called apologetics, which is called the defense of the faith. And it's, the, apologetics is a tool, but the kind of tool it is is not a hammer. It's not about knowing that uh, all the answers about the free will of mankind or the presence of the enemy in the world. Um, the purpose of apologetics is to uncover what's going on in that person's heart so that you can answer the question they really asked, which is probably not this one. Um, that's an aside, um, just because I love apologetics and I think everybody should know how to do it. Um, if you are a believer and you worry about this question, if you worry with this question, you struggle with it, that's okay. It's okay to humbly wrestle with Scripture and not know the answers. It's okay to seek out the answers. It's okay to say you don't know yet. It's all part of knowing God better, pop quiz, so that we can, oh, trust him more. Trust him more. Here at Generations, we want to know God better so that we can trust him more. And part of that is, is uh, trying to answer the tough questions like this one. Uh, in law school, I had a professor who, who taught me this, um, who coined this phrase called the wheel rule. And uh, I thought that every attorney in the world knew what this was until I tried to Google it in preparation for this message, and apparently George Flint just made this up. Uh, but it's a good principle. And Professor Flint, he was, he was a crazy person. He wore um, the same shirt two days in a row because his students on Monday were not the same as his students on Tuesday. And I didn't realize that until I took him in a summer session. I saw him every day. But he didn't change who he was for the summer session. So he was a crazy person, but he, he came up with this great way of, in, uh, of, of learning the law. Because sometimes in the law, you'll have one set of facts that's taken up to a court, and a court interprets those facts and comes up with a decision. And then you'll have another court that has very similar facts, and they come up with a decision that you feel like can't live in the same world as the other decision on the similar set of facts. So what the wheel rule does is it takes two facts or decisions or imperatives that are in apparent conflict, and it finds the rule that makes them both possible. So to apply this to our question, if God is good, why is there suffering in the world? We have two facts that are in apparent conflict. We have suffering, and we have blessing. If God is good, how can both of these things exist in the world? Why can't we just have Blessing, all blessing, all the time. Can we all agree that that would be awesome? Uh, well, it, in my life and in, in uh, my observation and my relationship with God, I have found the, the wheel rule, Professor Fent's real wheel rule to be helpful. Um, but I, I think I've come to a conclusion about suffering and blessing that might be controversial and unpopular. And that is, I think they might be the same thing. 
And if you're not with me on that, that's okay. Uh, I, I've said, I think I said this in home life, and I got a lot of skeptical looks. <laughs> so if you're not with me on that, that's fine. Today, what I really want to talk about is this principle. Suffering always yields, always leads to blessing. Suffering is never profitless. There's always a purpose to it. Uh, luckily, the Bible bears me out on that. Um, I didn't just uh, come up with something on my own. This isn't from the book of Brenna. James 1, 2 through 3, Count it all joy, brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. That verse goes on to talk about how steadfastness can make you perfect. Romans 5, 3 through 4, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, which produces character, and character produces hope. Psalm 30, 11 through 12, you have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. Romans 8, 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That's just four of what I'm pretty sure is a running theme in the Bible. If those four scriptures don't convince you, then let's talk about the ultimate suffering that led to blessing. Christ died on the cross so that we could live. And it's really important to talk about this because Christ, God, didn't do it for self-interest. He didn't need anything from us. He didn't need us to be saved. He would, be, he would have been fine for all of eternity, him and the Trinity. But we needed it. So he suffered because we needed him to. So that's a tough one to swallow because it makes us, if we're supposed to be Christ-like, it makes us think, if I have to go through suffering, that suffering might, the blessing on the other side of that suffering might not be for me. And if that's true, if we walk through suffering and the blessing on the other side is not for us, are we prepared to be the people we say we are? Will we do it anyway? Because if we're honest with ourselves, we don't want to have to do the hard stuff. We want the world to know God's forgiveness, his grace, his mercy, his healing, his reconciliation. Those are lovely words. We like to say them. Oh, God is forgiving. He is loving. He is gracious and merciful. He will heal you. We love to say those things. But if we're really honest with ourselves, we don't want to be hurt. We don't want to experience failure. We don't want to be betrayed. We don't want to be sick or injured. And we don't want any of our relationships to be broken. Unfortunately, we don't get a pass on this. 1 John 3.18 says that we are to be doers of the word and not hearers only. I would add, not speakers only. We have to do it. 
So if we want the world to know about Christ, we have to actually be the body of Christ on earth. And we have to be hurt, and we have to fail, and be betrayed, and have broken relationships. Because otherwise, some people may not ever know his forgiveness, his grace, his mercy, his healing, and his reconciliation if we don't demonstrate them in our lives. But wait, you might say, I'm a Christian. I am not supposed to suffer. I am supposed to be hashtag blessed. And if I'm not 100% blessed at the moment... Uh, you know, that I, it's, it's kind of my fault I'm not faithing correctly. Oh, oh, beloved, oh, beloved. Please be careful with that thought. There is an enemy who hides behind that thought. And he wants you to say things like, oh, I'm, I'm doing good, I'm fine, I'm blessed. Because it forces you to hide your problems from others. And it drives a wedge between you and the Father because it causes you to condemn yourself for not believing hard enough as if there's anything you can do to save yourself. The enemy wants you to be trapped and isolated. So let me dispel an illusion for you. Because you are Christian, you are guaranteed to go through suffering. It's going to happen. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. That's not a typo. It does. I really wanted to, to say, like you want to say, many are the afflictions of the wicked. No, many are the afflictions of the righteous. That's us, y'all. But the Lord delivers him out of them all. <clears throat> Sorry, I got a little ahead of myself. One of my favorite um, Proverbs is Proverbs 4, 18. The path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. Now you read that and you might be like, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Brighter and brighter until full day. I don't have to suffer. Be careful. When you read in Proverbs, there is always a second half to the proverb. You have to read them together to learn the lesson. The other half is, the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. The path of the righteous and the way of the wicked are the same road. You are walking the same road. But if you are the righteous, you can see all the stuff in front of you. The wicked can't. It's all dark. They don't know what they stumble over. So as the righteous, we have the benefit. We could be like, oh, I'm going to walk around that one. Sometimes you can't walk around it. Sometimes it's too big. You can't walk around it. You have to go through it. But you have the benefit of knowing what it was that caused you to stumble. Because it doesn't say the righteous won't stumble. It says the wicked just don't know over what they stumble. There's something to be said for knowing what caused your problem. <laughs> for knowing, uh, you know, that, that's a wisdom that comes from the Lord, from knowing why you're in the situation you're in. It's probably the first step toward getting out of it. So we are not, as Christians, promised exemption. We are promised victory. 
you might be saying, great, now I'm all bummed out about suffering. Thanks for that. Uh, What am I supposed to do about it? I'm glad you asked. Psalm 84, 5 through 7. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. Other, other translations say whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. Psalm 84, as a whole, is about the love and longing for the presence and courts of God. Uh, It's the psalm where we get the phrase, better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. It's that psalm. And these verses uh, describe the road that has to be traveled to get to his courts. In Hebrew, baka means weeping. The road to his presence runs through the valley of weeping. And as far as I'm aware, there's no detour. Um, Maybe the if you're prophet Elijah and you just get caught up to heaven and all that's left is a cloak. But other than that, we've got to walk through it. We have to walk through the valley of Baca, the valley of weeping, to get to his presence. And so since there's no detour around it, it follows that we have a part to play in it. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. It doesn't say... They go through the valley of Baca, and it suddenly becomes a place of springs. They make it a place of springs. And this is my favorite part, because it reminds me that this this thing I've got going on with the creator of the universe has nothing to do with magic. There's no abracadabra. There's no set of words that I can say that can conjure up the king of heaven to come to my aid. He is not a genie in a lamp. He is a person, and therefore the only access to him is through a relationship with him. And as with every relationship, it's, there's, there's two sides to it. It's not all him. We have to do things too. Now, don't get me wrong. I am not talking about works-based salvation. Salvation cannot be earned by any effort of our own. But y'all, salvation is just the beginning of the road. It's the beginning of your relationship with God. And that relationship stretches out through eternity. We are given eternal life. And part of that road, part of that relationship that you walk with him passes through the valley of weeping. So while we are in the valley, we have a job to do. They make it a place of springs. Our job is to dig wells. Which means, unfortunately, that we have to open our arms to pain and grief and loss because when suffering comes, we have to get to work. So for the time we have remaining, I wanted to talk about digging wells. And uh, I have a list of four things. And um, anytime a lawyer makes a list, uh, they're going to tell you that this list is not exhaustive. This list is not all-inclusive. It includes, but is not limited to, (laughs) these four things. 
if you have walked through the valley before in, in something that you were going through in your life and you said, and you noticed that I left the thing that worked for you off this list, add it to the list and tell other people. Um, so that's my very lawyerly disclaimer. You cannot pigeonhole a lawyer into a list. <laughs> but step one for me in my own life, uh, in the suffering, uh, you know, the suffering that's come to me, step one to digging a well is forgiveness. Um, I consider myself the world's foremost expert on forgiveness. Um, my, and, that, and that's from, you know, little, little micro interpersonal things, little offenses that I've had to forgive, to giant macro, this thing ruined my life for several years, things that I've had to forgive. My sister-in-law came over for Thanksgiving, and she knew I was preaching this weekend. She said, well, what examples are you going to use to tell people, you know, that, that you're qualified to talk about this? <laughs> And I said, well, I, I can't give any examples because if I told you the terrible things I've had to forgive, y'all would be mad for me, and then y'all would have to forgive people. And so <laughs> the whole point of forgiveness is that it stops the consequence of what happened and doesn't perpetuate it to other people. So you're going to have to take me a little bit on trust. I am the world's foremost expert on forgiveness. Uh, so as the world's foremost expert, I wanted to dispel some illusions that people have about what forgiveness is um, and, and what forgiveness isn't. Um, first of all, the first thing I hear people say that's incorrect is, well, I, I will forgive them, but right now I'm just not really in a forgiving mood. Now, I don't know, about, I don't, I don't know what a forgiving mood is. Is it like payday? and you went and got yourself a cute outfit with some extra money, or if you're a dude, you went to Home Depot and got that tool that is now the piece de resistance of your collection of tools, and you feel really awesome about life, and that's your forgiving mood? No. There's no such thing about a, as a forgiving mood, because forgiveness has absolutely nothing to do with your emotions. Nothing at all. Sorry to burst your bubble. If you wait until you feel like forgiving someone, you will never do it. Uh, the second thing I hear a lot when people talk about having to forgive someone is they'll say, well, I think I can forgive them as long as they promise never to do it again. Also not the same thing as forgiveness. Forgiveness sets no conditions. Forgiveness is now and forever. And if they do it again, it's now and forever. And if they do it again, it's now and forever, up to 70 times seven times. There is no, if they do it again, you can't allow that to invalidate your first forgiveness, because then you just wasted everybody's time. The third thing, <laughs> thanks for that. The third thing, <laughs> uh, the, a third misconception, and this is a big one about forgiveness, is that People are worried that I forgive you means the same thing as it's okay. That doesn't mean the same thing. Some people will withhold forgiveness because they feel like if I say I forgive you, I'm giving you license to hurt me again. No, no, no. Forgiveness means that hurt and it was wrong but I am releasing you from the consequences of your actions insofar as they depend upon me. I am setting you free 
from punishment. That's what forgiveness is. So forgiveness does not excuse the behavior. And if, you know, if it comes back and they hurt you again, maybe have a conversation about building trust at that point and help them understand, I forgive you, but forgiveness is free, and I have to forgive you. Forgiveness is free, but trust is earned. That's a separate conversation. Uh, and finally, we, we don't forgive. Forgiveness has absolutely nothing to do with the other person um, or the person you're holding forget, unforgiveness against. Forgiveness has everything to do with you and your relationship with God. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. We do not forgive because we feel like it, because we're promised it will never happen again. We forgive because God forgave us. Y'all see how the other person doesn't even come into that calculus. I forgive because God forgave me. So if you are in the valley of weeping today, step one is forgive whoever put you there. Now sometimes you might be in the valley of weeping because of your own actions, uh, because of sin or poor decision-making. You're, you're stuck with some consequences, and it's tough. I would say still start with forgiveness, because if you've asked God for forgiveness, and he will grant it if you ask him, then you, you kind of have to forgive yourself too. If God's forgiven you, who are you to hold a grudge? Uh, sometimes, though, the valley is created not by another person and not by yourself, but by something you couldn't do anything about in advance. It wasn't another person. Um, I think we had a great example of that in Hurricane Harvey. Um, you, can't, you can't forgive the hurricane. The hurricane doesn't care. <laughs> and if, if your valley, or, or you know, some people get, get sick and, and you can't forgive the cancer, sucks. Um, but I would still say that even if there's not something, someone you have to directly forgive that caused you your valley, still start with forgiveness. There might be something else in your life where you're holding on to unforgiveness. And at the very least, even if it has nothing to do with your present circumstances, letting go of that can free up space in your heart to deal with the things in your present. So always start with forgiveness. Second thing about digging a well. Find and learn the lesson. Dig in to his word. Read it like you're drowning and it's air. There are things in there that you forgot you knew and that will be illuminated differently when applied to the situation you're in now. I was, I was having a hard time at a job I was working at once. They were just, I mean, I don't want to call them evil, but they were kind of evil. <laughs> and, I, and I knew that, that they were coming after me and they were going to fire me for reasons of their own. And uh, I had I'd always read through the Psalms. And, you know, I'm a worship person. I like the Psalms. I always read through them, but the ones that say, like... Um, talk about battle and enemies and how God will slay your enemies for you. They had never really resonated with me until that moment 
when I was like, they're coming for me and there's nothing I can do. And every psalm about God fighting your battle for you was like, yeah. So dig into the word <laughs> when you're trying to dig your well. Uh, the next thing is, is praise. I needed more exclamation points on that one. Uh, when I was going through the hardest two years of my life were lived here on this stage in front of all of you. Um, and I, I am so grateful that I was on the worship team because I was not in a singing and dancing and praising mood. It sucked. And, uh, but, but I had made a commitment to the team to be here. And if there's, if there's any place where you have to authentically praise, it's on the worship team. You can't phone it in. People will know. <laughs> so even though I would drag myself here on some Sundays, once I was here and praising, how, how do I say this? Praise puts you in a position of power that you would not otherwise have, have looked for. When you praise in the middle of your fire, there are battles that are waged for you without you having to do anything more than sing a song. So don't, don't discount praise because you're sad. Sing when you're sad. There's a, um, a Mexican folk song called uh, Cielito Lindo, and the lyrics are, are canta y no llores. Sing and don't cry, because singing gladdens the heart. Um, and, and even more so when you, that singing links you up with the God of heaven. Um, and the third, thing is, the third thing for this point is, is listen, because he's not always in the wind or the earthquake, or the fire, sometimes he's in the gentle whisper that follows. So sometimes you have to turn the music off, which is hard for people on the worship team. Because we think, God only lives in the music. It's where he lives. <laughs> Just being honest, we tend to think that. <laughs> I think he lives in the bass drum. Um, but <laughs> sometimes you have to turn it off and... Uh, Go for a drive. Talk to him. He will talk back. If you do these three, these three things, only these three things, there's a good chance that God will reveal to you his plan for why you're going through what you're going through. Or at the very least, you will have grown to know him better so that you can trust him when he doesn't tell you what his plan is because that happens too. Sometimes he doesn't tell you why you're going through something. The point is, you have to trust him anyway, because he knows what he's doing. Another thing for finding and learning the lesson is that this isn't just restricted to the spiritual lesson you're supposed to learn. If your house was flooded by Harvey, learn how to make insurance claims. Learn about FEMA. Learn everything. Learn all the ins and outs of the claims process. Find reputable builders. Find out how to get inexpensive but really good quality building materials because someone else is going to need that information. Because your well's not just for you. It's for the person who comes behind you into the valley. 
My third point for digging wells is serve others. If you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. I almost, I, I, I got the whole message ready and then I, I was in the shower one morning and I thought about this one. <laughs> I thought I had to put that in there too. Because it's not, it's not enough to sit and navel gaze. Uh, sorry, that's a term that my friend Sarah from Austin, I, I think she came up with it, navel gazing, which is where you're so focused on what, what you're going through that you can't see anything around you. What serving others does is it lifts your eyes and it makes you see, number one, that what you're going through may not be the worst thing in the world. Someone else who maybe doesn't have food or clothes or clean water might be in a worse situation than you, and you could go be a blessing to them, regardless of whatever you're dealing with. And it will get you outside your own problems. It will give you a scope and perspective that you would not otherwise have had. And sometimes just getting up above the valley helps you see the way out. Finally, move forward. One of our core values here, I think this is the heal mercifully one, but it's we believe it's okay not to be okay, but not to stay that way. You are not digging a well to swim in for the rest of your life. You are digging a well so that others can have water in the desert. But you are passing through the valley of weeping. You do not live in the valley. Don't live in the valley. Don't live stuck in suffering. Move on. There might be another valley ahead of you, but it's not going to be forever. And finally, oh, finally, repeat as needed. <laughs> if you go, Brenna, I did all four things. Do them again. Do number one again. Do number three again. Keep doing it until you see breakthrough. Because there will be breakthrough. He is not going to leave you in the valley forever. He has better plans for you. He has a future and a hope for you. It's not the valley of weeping the whole time. Uh, Joshua 21, 45, I didn't write it down, so I'm going to paraphrase. But it says that every promise that God had made to his people came to pass. Not one of them failed. Your promises will come to pass. But while you're in the valley, dig wells. This is my last point. Um, it, it didn't fit into the list, but I'm really passionate about it, so I wanted to talk about it anyway. Avoid isolation. Avoid isolation like it's going to kill you because it might. If you are going through hard times, the lie that you may be telling yourself is, I don't want anyone to know that I'm going through hard times. I don't know what they're going to think about, about me because I'm going through hard times. But that's a lie. The enemy wants you isolated and in pain. And here's the tricky thing. Oh, it's so nasty. It's a nasty trick. When you are fine and experiencing no pain or suffering at all, when you are comfortable, 
there is a lie you may be telling yourself, which is, I'm good. I don't need anybody else. That is a lie as well. He wants you isolated and, and, and cut off from other people. Because if you're comfortable and happy, the enemy wants you to stay there. He wants you to stagnate in comfort. So keep going. If you're that, if you're that person today, and you're the, you know what, I'm good, me in the chair, I'm good. Um, I don't need any, anyone else. Or if you're the person who is here saying, I just don't want anyone else to know what's happening. You are both so wrong. And I'm so glad you're here. Because our DNA at this church, our reason for being is no one walks alone. You can throw a rock and hit an opportunity to come be involved with other people doing things, serving others. You can come on Friday mornings to Rayford Hope. Please come on Friday mornings to Rayford Hope if you can. You can serve in Kids World. Please serve in Kids World if you can. You can, if you are under the age of 25, join the bridge. If you're a teenager, come on Wednesday nights. Join a home life group. Come to a Bible study. Do something. Do anything rather than walk through the valley alone. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for being right by us as we walk through the valley. Help us to dig wells, to dig down, not, not for us, but for others. Help us to correctly represent you here on earth. We love you. We can't wait for the day when the road takes us into your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. I've tasted and seen of the sweetest of loves Where my heart becomes free and my shame is undone Your presence, Thank you for listening. Be sure to visit gchurch.net for more information about this podcast and other resources.